Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week, we're going to talk about something that, that I think people have not paid enough attention to, our justice system, not only what's happened with mass incarceration and all of the problems we talk about under criminal justice reform, but what's happening right now under stay-in-place uh, lockdowns, those kind of situations. And it's also an opportunity for us at Free the People to premiere a project that we've been working on for almost a year on restorative justice. And today I have two of the stars of that documentary, uh, Kathleen McGoy of the Longmont Community Justice Partnership. Hey, Kathleen. Hi, thanks for having me. And Chief Mike Butler of the Longmont Police Department. Hey, Mike. Uh, we also have Chief Mike Butler of the Longmont Police Department with us, too. Hey, Mike, how are you? Doing? Uh, good morning. I'm great. Thank you. Uh, let's start with, let's, let's define some terms here, and I want to get into the current situation as well. But Kathleen, maybe you could uh, explain to people sort of on a, on a top line level what the principle of restorative justice is and how it how it compares with with the traditional justice system. Yeah, yeah, of course. So restorative justice actually has its roots in indigenous practices. So it's actually a very old way of dealing with conflict or wrongdoing. And it's sort of been reintroduced as a practical approach to crime and wrongdoing in our conventional system. And it can look like a lot of different things in practice, but I'll describe specifically how it looks in Longmont. And the important thing to know about restorative justice is that it's a victim-centered approach. So we are always, to the greatest extent possible, trying to prioritize the voice and needs of the victim or harm party in a crime. In Longmont, what that looks like is when the police respond to a call for service and they make contact with a victim and offender, they're looking for two criteria for the case to be eligible for a referral to restorative justice. And those criteria are that the offender is taking responsibility for their actions and the victim is okay with the case going the non-conventional route. So they're okay with the case not going to court. That means that we can work with offenders of all ages, as young as 10 years old up into however old. So we've worked with people up into their 70s. We work with all types of offenses. So an officer can refer a petty misdemeanor or felony level crime to our program. The only crimes that we don't work with are traffic violations, domestic violence, sex assault, or anything that carries a mandatory sentence. And as long as those two criteria are met, the officer can refer the case directly to our program in lieu of writing a ticket or making an arrest, meaning it's a complete diversion around the criminal justice system. So the case comes to our office and our staff will call victims and offenders and their support people. Of course, if they're juveniles, we need to talk with their parents. And they'll make sure that the case is a good fit, make sure that those criteria are met. And then our staff will match the case with trained volunteer facilitators. And those volunteers will then meet separately with each offender and victim in a what we call a pre-conference, which is essentially like a preparation meeting before bringing them together into a process that we call a community group conference. And the community group conference involves the two facilitators, 
the victim and offender, however many victims and offenders were involved in that incident with their support people. The police officer who referred the case also participates as well as two volunteer community members. And that conference follows uh, three main questions of restorative justice, or we could say there's actually four. The questions are, what happened and what can you take responsibility for? Who was impacted and how? And what can be done to make things right or repair the harm relationships? So everyone participates in a, a very structured, facilitated dialogue that follows those questions. We also use a strengths-based approach where we look at who the offender is separate from this one incident. Who are they in, in life? We, we really make a point of saying no person can be defined by one action or one behavior. And then ultimately, the outcome of that conference is a contract uh, that's a, we call it a reparative contract. So the offender who in our program uh, we refer to as the responsible person, the responsible person will leave the conference with this contract that has usually three to five specific actions that they're going to take to repair the relationships that have been affected. And that contract has a deadline. So as long as they complete those actions by the deadline, the case is closed and they won't have any criminal charge on their record. If they don't complete or if they reoffend while under contract, then we refer the case back to the officer and the case goes forward in the conventional system. You know what, the, the principle that you mentioned here, uh, I've, I've been very involved in criminal justice reform uh, going back to, to work that I did in a previous job uh, working with the Obama administration. So this is kind of a, a nonpartisan, transpartisan thing trying to fix the justice system uh, through legislation and, and all that sort of stuff. But what, what we're describing here is is actually taking it out of the system. And the, the principle here, and I, I might get uh, the chief to weigh in on this, the principle here is one of individual responsibility. And, and, and I've always sort of struggled with this phrase, debt to society, and, and clearly society is, is harmed by, by criminal behavior. But um, what, what gets lost in that is that there is an individual victim and that there is an individual actor that, that harmed that victim and this process very much focuses on them. Um, Mike, do you wanna go into that a little bit more, the difference? Sure. Um, well, you know, the criminal justice system has been around for a long, long time, and its main emphasis is one of being punitive, um, an eye for an eye, a pound of flesh. And for way too long, what we've been doing uh, in terms of trying to maybe fix particular issues like social issues or health issues is that we have passed laws or we have stiffened penalties um, in order to try to fix these particular issues as if passing these laws or stiffening, stiffening these penalties would serve as sort of an insurance policy that might protect us from the human condition. Well, we know that just hasn't worked. And when we talk about reform of the criminal justice system, I think the reform has to go all the way back to how elected officials perceive how they can solve issues. I still talk to a number of elected officials, whether they're local, state, or federal, that believe we're going to solve issues by with new legislation. That just simply doesn't happen. That is they, That new legislation 
or old legislation simply hasn't fixed a lot of the social or health issues that we are constantly dealing with in our in our communities. And so and so that's that's been a way of doing business that the criminal justice system and sometimes you don't associate elected officials, but they have to take that kind of responsibility in terms of saying, what can we do differently outside of passing legislation? What can look different in order to really try to get to the heart and perhaps cause of some of the social and health issues that we're dealing with? And there's not a police department in America, Matt, that won't tell you that some of the significant social issues and health issues they're dealing with are things like addiction, things like mental health, things like homelessness. Those issues more and more are more and more pronounced, rise to the surface, and are things that that typically the criminal justice system deals with or some a residual of those particular issues. And so it, this this kind of punitive, one size fits all adversarial approach um, simply hasn't worked. And all you have to do is look at recidivism rates. Um, almost invariably throughout the country, they're anywhere from 50 to 70 percent. And so when we look at what we're doing and how we're doing it, for a while I've been suggesting that we look at kind of three main goals in terms of what we're going to do when we're dealing with people who commit crime, people who commit harm. And those things are the questions I think we need to ask are, how do we keep our communities safe? How do we minimize recidivism? And how, to, how what can we do to try to bring healing or a sense of wholeness to the victim? If those were our three questions, the conversations would shift, our actions would shift, what we're doing in our communities as criminal justice systems would definitely shift. And so restorative practices, restorative principles, restorative justice has been has been a way of doing business that has been different than the criminal justice system. It brings different forces into play. It brings the forces of relationship, the forces of reintegration, the forces of responsibility, as you suggested, respect. Now we even go so far as to say, we even get into these forces, for lack of a better word, of, of apology and forgiveness, powerful, powerful forces that we believe that when people can get to that point in a relationship with somebody, an offender with a victim, and an offender with the community at large, when we can make those forces work in these in these restorative justice conferences, that's when you begin to see lower recidivism rates. And recidivism rate in Longmont, I, I, I can't speak for anywhere else, is less than 10%. In a recent study that we had done by two economic professors from a local university, University of Colorado, the recidivism rate for a couple of thousand different cases was under 4%. And so remarkable, almost unheard of. And that's what, if you want to know bottom line stuff, we're one of the safest communities in Colorado. And I attribute the, our restorative justice uh, practices uh, to quite a bit of that. And so, so we, we have seen the results of that. And I know that we have sent, our police officers have sent several thousand cases over the years to, to the Kalamak Community Justice Partnership. And when you look at a community like 100,000, all you have to do is begin to do the math a little bit and see 
that when your recidivism rates go from 50 to 70 percent in those several thousand cases to less than 5 percent, that you're doing something to keep the community safe. You're obviously doing something to minimize recidivism. And in these cases, as Kathleen suggested and said, that our victims and our victim's voice becomes the centerpiece. In the criminal justice system, there's no legal provision for a victim's voice. And that gets lost in a lot of what we do and how we, how we do business within the criminal justice system. And so the, the victim's voice is powerful. The, the offender, the person who committed the harm, has a safer opportunity to choose accountability, to admit responsibility and choose accountability. The criminal justice system has a difference tries to legislate, try to demand, and tries to force accountability. The restorative justice process gives the uh, offender, the person who committed the harm, an opportunity to choose accountability. And all of us know that when people choose to say, I'm wrong and I want to make a difference and I want to set things straight, that, the, 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 that the, probably the chances of sustaining that accountability go way up. And that's one of the reasons why recidivism rates are so low. Kathleen, one of the things that, that you say in the documentary is that, and I'll butcher your words, but that a, a person's one mistake shouldn't define the rest of their lives. So when, we, when, when Chief Mike is talking about recidivism and mass incarceration, um, you translate that into individual lives that are going to go in one of two different directions. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I would link that up with in terms of what Mike just shared um, and this idea of paying a debt, repaying your debt to society. You know, our, our conventional system is based on this idea of retributive justice, which sees committing a crime as a violation of the law and the state. Restorative justice reframes that and says committing a crime is a violation of relationships with the community. And so when we bring in those community members to participate in the conference, part of their role is to talk about how the broader community has been impacted by this crime. So for an easy example would be graffiti. So a vandalism or criminal mischief type offense. Community members can share back with the responsible person and say, you know, when there's graffiti in the community, I start thinking, oh, maybe that's a park that I shouldn't go to, or maybe that's a, a place where I shouldn't let my kids go play because I don't understand what, what's going on there. Is there gang activity? What's this related to? And the responsible person can acknowledge that their actions have caused that harm and made that impact. And then we can say, okay, well, what, what could you do to try to make this right? How could you give back to repair the harms that you've caused to the community instead of how can we punish you and make you sit around thinking about what you did wrong and and what we know happens with people in our in our system is that they sit in this shame and internalize this label as oh i am a vandal i am a thief i am you know and and that stays with them if there isn't any sort of transformative process to support agency, support accountability, and say, actually, I'm more than that. I'm more than that. And look, I can use my talents and skills and interests to give back to the community, give back to my family, and actually get back on track with who it is that I want to be. So that's a huge piece that 
is really powerful that's missing, say from court. We don't hear from impacted community members in the typical justice scenario, the judicial system. It's really, you know, there's lawyers, there's a judge, and there's a sentence handed down that doesn't incorporate the many voices of the community. Yeah, I want to second what um, Kathleen just said and maybe rephrase it a little bit, but the criminal justice system is has been this way, I think, you know, since the beginning. And we, we tend to look at people as a problem to be solved and to be fixed. And we tend to see people through the lens of their deficiencies. And what restorative justice does, it looks at the lens, as Kathleen says, of their gifts, their strengths, their talents, their skills, what they have to offer. And we don't look at people as a problem to be solved. We actually begin to leverage what's good inside of people. I know that's a different way of doing it. I'm a cop, and I've been a cop for four decades. And believe me, I've been down this road of looking people at people as a problem to be solved or looking at people, someone to be fixed or through the lens of their deficiencies. What we began to notice, not just me, but our, every one of our police officers have begun to see is that when they begin to see people as having possibilities versus just being a problem to be solved, their actions begin to be different. And they're beginning to see uh, what the impact and effect of, of this is. And there's many, many stories of police officers who have kind of almost flipped the switch or shifted from being a hard-nosed, grizzled, savvy, seasoned cop that you might kind of be seeing portrayed on TV to someone that's entirely different in terms of sin. That doesn't mean that we let those folks go uh, who are committing serious crimes and serial crimes in our community. We don't. We focus on those folks because we're also trying to ensure that our community is safe. But it's a different kind of focus, if that makes any sense. Yeah, very much so. And you you mentioned your perspective as a career police officer. In, in the beginning of the documentary, you point out that, that Longmont, Colorado, and particularly law enforcement in Longmont, Colorado, started off this process with a with a big credibility problem with the community. Tell that story. Well, it, it was a credibility issue or it was it was anything that's brand new uh, and kind of plopped into the middle of a tradition traditional um, way of doing business where there's a lot of custom and here's your school skilled and trained to do it a different way. Anytime you introduce something new, it has credibility issues. And we began going down this path uh, and knowing that we were dealing with a lot of traditions and customs that we had actually uh, perpetrated as well. And so we had a number of police officers who were not in favor of this, thinking, frankly, that management, particularly me, was off, off my rocker. And I, I, what was I even thinking about? Um, there were lots of conversations around Mike Butler has to go, so to speak. Um, there were people who, I don't want to get feels, too, It feels kind of touchy-feely, doesn't it? it, it well, it, it can feel touchy-feely, but, uh, but when people choose accountability, I'm not sure what's touchy-feely about that. <laughs> and, when, and when victims begin to say, hey, you know, this means something, you know, that, that's powerful. 
if there's something that cops have their kind of focus on, it's it's the plight of victims. Um, they see victims uh, in their rawest form, and cops everywhere have a sensitivity to victims in terms of how they're dealing do, doing their jobs. And when they see what's happened in restorative justice, they see how the victim can actually go from being significantly victimized to healing. And the other thing that they're attached to, very much so, is this sense of accountability. Uh, they want to see uh, people held accountable, so to speak, but they love the idea that people are actually choosing to be accountable. And if you want to soften a police officer, if you want a police officer to kind of shift their mindset towards someone who's committed a crime, if that person comes forward and says, you know, I did it, I'm responsible, I want to make amends, I want to make a difference, you'll see almost in every police officer a shift in their thinking towards that person. And so that's what's happened um, in, in Longmont for, for many, many of our police officers. Start and say, from the very, very, very beginning, uh, when we started um, Restorative Justice in Longmont, we wanted it to be a community-based process. We did not want it to be kind of under the auspices of government. We wanted the, we believed that if the community, if it wasn't more of a community-based process, we would have more people from the community engaged. And part of what we're not talking about right now is the, uh, the, uh, the strengths of a community in terms of how do you build a community to begin to take care of itself. So frankly, for lack of a better way of saying it, government is less needed. Uh, criminal justice systems can easily build dependency, and I'll go as far as saying unhealthy dependency um, on it from the community. Past administrators and in, in police departments would say, if you need us, call us for anything. Well, frankly, our communities took us up on that to the point where 70 to 80 percent of our calls for service didn't have a crime attached to them. And so we wanted to kind of push back a little bit and say, we want the community to be more engaged. We want them to be more responsible. We want them to take over a part of what we call justice in our, in our community outside of the criminal justice system. And so from the very get-go, 25 years ago, we began that kind of concept and that kind of thinking, the practical application being, in this case, restorative justice. And so Kathleen can probably be more clear about the numbers, but we've had anywhere between 15 and 20,000 people in our community in one way, shape, or form connected to the restorative justice process. That's a huge, huge number. And it begins to change, the sh it begins to shift how we redefine justice. If there's, if there's a potential stumbling block to restorative justice in a lot of communities, it's not just found in the government or within police departments, it's also found in how the community defines justice. When you hear people, when someone puts a microphone in someone and say, how do you feel or what do you want? I want justice. They're talking about a pound of flesh. You're talking about an eye for an eye. Well, when the community can, can on its own begin to redefine justice under the kind of the auspices and principles of restorative justice, they begin to see what role they can play. They begin to see the responsibility 
they have. And so from the very get-go, that's been how we've been doing business. And I'll let Kathleen jump in here. Yeah, I think, to, yeah, just to build on that, um, as, as Matt Battaglia mentioned, most restorative justice throughout the United States is, is it's catching on, I'm happy to say, coast to coast throughout the nation, in large part because of dissatisfaction with the criminal justice system and concerns about uh, mass incarceration and uh, um, disproportionate numbers of uh, marginalized populations that are being incarcerated. However, most restorative justice is happening through schools and through district attorney's offices, which means that they're housed within those institutions. And so, you know, from my perspective, having restorative justice anywhere is better than no restorative justice. But what we're doing in Longmont, um, which is there's there are several programs around the country, even right here in Boulder County, there's a few programs that do work in partnership with law enforcement as LCJP does. Um, but it's fairly controversial because people have concerns about um, police discretion, who's going to get the restorative justice option. And we're really proud to say that in Longmont, our community is 30% Hispanic and Latino and 30% of our cases involve Hispanic and Latino families. So we, and we track that carefully. We have uh, agencies, social justice agencies in town that are paying attention to those numbers and are, are concerned about that. And what, what I think is the real impact and potential is that restorative justice is a humanizing process for everybody. Everyone who participates in that conference is inevitably asked to be held responsible to each other and themselves. Nobody can leave that process and say like, well, I have nothing to do with this community. I, you know, I just kind of waltz around and I have no effect on anybody else's lives. And that applies to our officers too. So we actually see really strengthened relationships between officers and community members because of their engagement with restorative justice. The sense of mutual accountability and respect actually grows because in that process, everyone has equal voice. So the officers get to come and participate as harmed community members. They're, they don't come in as an authority of the restorative justice dialogue. And so that actually kind of puts everybody on this really different playing ground. And we have volunteers that say, you know, I never thought that I'd think of a police officer as someone that I'd wave to on the street, you know, or someone who I'd have a conversation with. And then through participating in our program, there's this, it's, it's humanizing, right? Like we start realizing that we actually all have similar struggles we're all, like, especially right now with the coronavirus, we're all facing a range of impacts and hardship due to the sheltering in place and, and just the medical implications. So um, I think this, this piece of equal voice and everyone having something that's important to say allows for these conversations to shape the community. Chief, uh uh, I mentioned this at the top of the show, but maybe you could tell us, uh, I, I read a lot of stories uh, all over the country about, about court dates being canceled and, and a lot of the pieces of our traditional justice system are at least slowed down significantly, if not 
grinding to a stop right now. What's the situation in Longmont? Not too dissimilar. Uh, let me just build on what you just said there. I've been having conversations with our local district attorney, who's very much uh, a, um, a proponent of utilizing restorative practices. But our criminal justice system has shrunk back too. Um, you know, our, our local Boulder County, there's a jail for every county in, in, in the country. And our county jail has, has decided that they can no longer take various kinds or certain kinds of cases because they know now that um, prisons and jails can be hotspots for this COVID-19 virus. We've gone from close to a population of around 500, which stays pretty steady throughout the year, to a, a population of 225 in our local Boulder County Jail. And what that kind of, the, the kind of moving back from that, what that does is it, it, it forces our police departments to kind of rethink what we're doing. And so in Longmont, and I can tell you in other, other cities in Boulder County, we've minimized contact with the community as a result of this COVID-19 virus. We're not making anywhere near as many arrests or summonses, issuing summonses. <clears throat> and so as a result of that, you know, and the other part of that, there's very few prosecutions. Our court dockets, our court system is basically shut down through June 1st. And so, and what, what we're seeing is we're seeing fewer calls for service. We're not seeing we're not seeing major safety issues at this point uh, in terms of things that have happened. And so we've really ratcheted down our criminal justice system, which is the case everywhere in the country. And, and I keep up with a lot of national organizations who keep some data and statistics on this. We're not seeing rises in crime. We're not seeing more victimization. We're not seeing communities uh, that or populations within our communities who feel underrepresented or or underprotected. So we're not seeing that at this point. We're still early. We're in this for about a month, but so far that's been the case. So, given that, I've been having conversations with our district attorney about okay. So when we kind of whatever the phraseology right now, when we open things back up, whatever that looks like, and whatever speed that happens, what if? We didn't. What if we kind of didn't go back to where we were? What if we kind of stayed in this shrunken back mode? What would that look like? And how do we get the other chiefs and the sheriff to engage in that way of thinking that we're not going to go back to where we were, but we're going to kind of monitor what we're doing and what can we do differently when we choose to open it all back up again? Our district attorney is very much in favor of having those conversations um, around what that might look like. So you, you think there might be an opportunity here to kind of reset the system and rethink it and, and for other um, localities adopting some of these practices that you've already implemented and you have data to show that it's working? Without, without question, this is almost, you know, this COVID-19 phenomenon, whatever it's been, can present some real interesting opportunities for us. Potentially, we can leverage some of these opportunities to become a little bit different. And in the criminal justice system, we're we can do that. Now, 
you know, we're doing more than the restorative justice in Longmont. We're also doing some things related to addiction and related to mental health. Like I said earlier, we don't arrest near as many people who are struggling with addiction or their mental health who have committed crimes. Uh, we're doing more different kinds of things. We have an angel initiative. If people walk through our front door with an addiction, they say, I have an addiction, we will find them treatment. I'm talking the front door of the police department. And today we've 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 offered services in which we have found treatment for free for over 250 people in our community. We just started this a couple of years ago. And then we have programs like Lead and Core, which work with people in our community who are struggling with addiction. This is out of our police department. Uh, um, we work with people struggling with their addiction or struggling with their mental health, and we divert them away from the criminal justice system. We actually divert them into other systems and processes where they're more likely to get a, a, a service versus being um, diverted into the criminal justice system where we know they won't spend a lot of time and we know they'll get very little help uh, in terms of any to deal with their particular health issues. So I could go on and on and on about that, but it gets into actually some neuroscience around how these things can be done differently in a way that can help people who are struggling with addiction and mental health. And by the way, there's not a police chief that wouldn't stand up and say that two of the major issues they're dealing with in their communities are people struggling with their mental health and addiction. So we gotta be, we, get, we can look at these things differently. And this COVID-19 can help us, I think we can leverage this, this opportunity to potentially look at these kinds of uh, circumstances differently. Kath, Kathleen, do you do, uh, I assume you agree with that, but I want to ask you specifically um, what, are the opportunities and are your programs still functioning under shelter in place? Yeah, yeah, that's something that we are really excited about. Um, I have a staff of five people. Our, our agency is a nonprofit and my coworkers were just incredible in really leaping into high gear to figure out how to transfer our entire process to virtual platforms. So everything from all of the, you know, agreements that people sign to confident, how will we protect confidentiality when we shift to digital conferencing, um, process and procedure training our volunteers, and ultimately getting everything going on Zoom. So we are continuing to both accept referrals from police and then processing those referrals via Zoom conferencing. And we, we're really proud of that because we're, we're not necessarily, we don't have a tech department, <laughs> of course, we're a tiny nonprofit, um, but we figured out because in essence, our organizational culture is responsive and adaptive and innovative. We were not held to a physical space like the courtroom where someone has to sort of sit above all the rest and you know have a certain space in place um, to support the the process where you know because we're much more in this um, connective uh, way of being together we just had to adapt some of the cues that we give people you know there's no way like we rely, of course, a lot on eye contact when we're in the same room together. And 
you know, on these video calls, you can't really see who's looking at who. So there are some tricks that we've had to add and train our volunteers in just so people continue to feel like it's a really structured space that they're participating in so that they can feel safe. And what's been really incredible about that is that our staff are calling folks who have been referred and they're able to hear their full story. So people, you know, we're, we're not therapists, to be clear, this is not a therapeutic intervention, but there is space for people to say, yeah, you know, I, you know, I'm experiencing this loss of trust with my mom because of this decision I made um, when I, when I shoplifted or when I, you know, was in this fight at school or whatever the case may be. And now here we are at home and it's like, this relationship is more important than ever. And repairing this relationship is more important than ever. Um, or we're hearing from families where there is escalating tension or there's violence in the home and we're able to be a resource breaking through some of the isolation people are feeling and saying, hey, you know, we're here. We hear what's going on. Here's what you need to do. You know, if it's not if it's contacting law enforcement or another service, then we can provide that information. So we are excited that we continue to support community resilience, even at a time where people are, are struggling and feeling really distant and separate from each other. I, I love hearing about bottom-up solutions to, to problems. And, and I wanna pursue this, uh, this notion that in some ways, this uh, un unfortunate crisis, and we, we know all of the problems that have been created by, by COVID-19 and the lockdowns and, and all of that collateral damage. But here's, here's an opportunity to sort of uh, uh, create an entrepreneur our way out of this box and, and come up with a, with a, with a, with a better system um, in the long run. And that's kind of why, that's why we made the documentary in the first place. And, and my aspiration, and I think for both of you, the aspiration was, Let's go tell this story to as many people as possible. Let's let's tell them what worked, what didn't work. Let's show them some data. We have processes that we've tested that we know work here, and let's export that. That's part of what we're gonna do on Thursday. Uh, Matt, do you wanna talk just a little bit about what the plan is for Thursday and how people can see this documentary and, and see these two rock stars in the field making it happen? <laughs> um. Yeah, we're going to have the documentary is going to start screening on Thursday at eight. Um, we'll have we're going to show the full documentary. It's about 45 minutes or so. Um, and then afterwards, uh, Sam, who also co-directed the picture, myself, Kathleen and Mike will all be on a panel. We'll talk a little bit about the documentary, maybe share some more about the uh, the fun we had uh, making it. Um <laughs> Kathleen took us to a place while we were filming next to your office. It was on diners, drive-ins and dives, which was exciting. I saw, I saw Guy Fieri there while watching, you know, quarantine shows. Uh, so Longmont, Colorado is on the map for multiple reasons, not just uh, restorative justice, but, but Guy's been there. Um, so <laughs> that's, it, that's essential to know. <laughs> <laughs> if Guy's been there, it must be a good place. But yeah. um, we, uh, you know, I think we're really we're all I think we're all really proud of the film, um, and uh, and it's it's different because it's not it's you know we're we're telling a 
you know, on its face, the genre is it's it's crime, but but it's it's a very po- it's a positive message, and it's a positive. Um, I think it's a positive outlook on things, and I think that that's something that a lot of people probably need right now. Um, it's not it's not a uh, it's not a downer of a movie. Uh, I think it's an upper. Yeah. So, um, think, you know, all of you, um, both uh, Kathleen and Mike, as the storytellers, and and Sam Martin and Matt Battaglia as as the directors, turned what could easily be a pretty wonky discussion about uh, uh, sort of justice practices into human stories about people in the community sort of rising up and 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 solving a problem. Uh, my aspiration, and I haven't, I, I guess I haven't told either Mike or Kathleen this, but I my aspiration was to eventually get to a point where we would physically be showing the film in communities that expressed interest in this process and and hopefully having you guys and and your teams uh, provide some some assistance to anyone that wants to pick up this this ball you don't need to commit to that now because we're we're not allowed out of our houses yet but i think i think someday we can do that but in the meantime we're going to do this this uh digital community and and kathleen as you pointed out uh, technology does solve some of these problems at least in the short run yeah and any community that's interested in learning more about what we're doing here in Longmont, I I always prioritize those conversations and Mike or another officer from the Longmont Public Safety Department is happy to connect with other law enforcement officials. You know, it is it's true that just like if if you want to sort of sell a restorative approach in a school, it's good for teacher a teacher who believes in it to talk to other teachers. Similarly, other law enforcement agencies will receive this information better when they're hearing from another peer. And the Longmont police officers that we work with are incredibly generous in talking with other agencies because they believe in it. And ultimately what officers say is, this gives us another tool. We need another tool to best serve the community and and enforce uh, community safety or provide for community safety. So yeah, any if there's any inquiries, um, we can certainly at this time just do calls or video conferences and talk about lessons learned. We've been around for 25 years, so we've done a lot of learning through trial and error in this process. And I would love to support other communities in in just like they're they're welcome to just copy and paste what we're doing instead of trying to go through all that trial and error themselves. What's a good place for people to go if they want to connect with you? They're welcome to visit our website is a great place to start, which is www.lcjp.org. And then we have a, a contact us form on there that we do check. We receive those and we check those. Or you can sign up for our newsletter if you just want to hear a little bit more over the course of the year what we're up to. And our phone number is on there as well. So any any of those means of communication, we will respond to. Uh, Chief Mike, any uh, closing thoughts? No, I just I agreed with what uh, Kathleen said. I. You know, it's a um, it's an opportunity again, and we're wide open to assisting. As Kathleen said, we're uh, there's a lot of police officers within Longmont uh, that have spoken eloquently and articulately, and based in a lot of their own personal experiences uh, that can speak to restorative justice 
but um, I think these principles are are um, can be profound in terms of bringing about um, a safer community. And um, we definitely have the track record to show what's been going on in Longmont, and we're wide open to helping anybody if they want some assistance. Excellent. So the the original concept for for the movie was to go to film festivals. It's already won a couple of awards, but obviously film festivals is, have essentially been postponed for, for a long time. We don't know exactly when we're going to get back to that. So this Thursday will be the only opportunity, a one-time opportunity. It's only going to be live to check out what I think has turned out to be just a, a fantastic documentary about restorative justice. I want to thank both of you. And Matt, I guess I have to thank you as well. This, this has been an awesome conversation. And I I look forward to fixing a lot of these problems. Yeah, right. thank you so much for, thanks for having us. It's, it's an exciting time. I think this is, there's a real potency right now to say, you know, people are, are feeling a little bit more curious and spacious about how can we do things differently and restorative justice is definitely a solution. Thank you. Look forward to Thursday. Thanks guys. Okay. Great. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.